we're diving in, obviously, into uh, numbers again, and we, we've going to be there for a while, and I just put this slide back up, and I apologize, I was going to make more copies, and I did not do that, uh, so I will get to that, I promise, and feel free to remind me, but I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully remember tomorrow, I'll have them ready for next week, but this breaks us down, right, in numbers, and we're still here, 1 through 10, and we're, we're still at this, what I call current, since the census, we're talking. When we get to chapter 7, we're actually going to go back in time a little bit and fill in details about what transpired. And they're important details, 7 through 9, 11, 9, 15, because it's going to carry us from the tabernacle dedication, but we're going to see more details that are critical to things we saw in Numbers. What I did tonight is I, I was attempting to get through numbers five and six, and I'm getting through numbers five, uh, and we'll do six next week, and then we'll kind of work through some of the uh, data, uh, some of the backtracking, but it's very important to see what they do. But we're going to be here, and we're going to be talking here about laws, and it's about ritual purity. It's about, clean, I call it cleanup, because in, in Leviticus, we got through all these laws, all these details, and now we're in numbers, and we're getting ready to go on the journey and Leviticus happens in a one-month span of time, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that month again. We're going to go back to uh, the, the high priest being dedicated, but right now we're going through some laws, and a lot of the laws we've heard before, and so why in the world do we have them again? What is, what is God trying to do? And I use the word clean up, because he's trying to get them to understand something, to be ready to go on the trip, to make sure they understand the importance of some key factors. One is his presence, which is the number one thing. But I think all of us, uh, whoever here leaves on a, on a trip and they have a checklist, who makes an actual checklist they have on paper and check it off? I like that. Who here has somewhat of a checklist in their mind? Who here does no checklist at all? But you do do in your office and get paperwork or you don't even do that. So you travel like my father-in-law who had 17 suitcases for three days because he didn't know what to pack because he just threw it all in a bag. I, still, I think I'd share the story. Last year, Colorado Springs, me and my family, seven of us, had less luggage than my father-in-law did. And we stayed 10 days. He was there for four. And that's because he said he was packing, fell asleep, woke up at three in the morning, threw everything in, and went and had two checked bags plus carry-on for five days. And I just walked away. My in-laws have always been overpackers anyway. And so I have trained Heather in the last 20 years how to pack properly for a trip. And you'd think I'd get in trouble for that. But that's one thing I'm allowed to say legit because I was a better packer than she was. I'm a checklist guy as well. In the end, all of us have a certain checklist. When I leave for a trip, it's weird. Suddenly I am, am consumed with getting all the bills paid, all the mail checked, opened, sorted. I don't like the thought of mail sitting there and then Heather holds the mail and then there's no mail coming in. Everything's been taken care of. But regardless of your level of preps, you do think a little bit about it. And, and that's what I think these chapters are. And really this chapter is, it's this checklist for a very significant journey to a new home, to the promise that God has given them that goes all the way back to Abraham, goes all the way back to Genesis. And so we're diving into what is chapter 5, which is cleanup. And it has one of the more difficult, I think, challenging ones to deal with. And, and that's, we're going to come to it in the middle of chapter 5 about adultery and all this stuff that a woman has to walk through. But we begin with chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And I went too far I hit the button twice. It's uncleanliness. And, and the idea is this, is who is unclean in the camp must go out, which is a law we know. But let me read chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, and this is after we've numbered everybody and we've given our assignments, command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper and everyone that hath an issue and whosoever is defiled by the dead. Both male and female shall you put out. Without the camp shall you put them, that they defile not their camps in the midst whereof I dwell. And that is an important concept in Numbers. Who is in Israelites' camp? God is. And when we get to chapter 10 and they start moving out into the desert, it's going to be a cloud, it's going to be fire. He is visibly present with them. And it's a concept that Israel was supposed to grasp and struggles with, and it's something we struggle with, is understanding the presence of a holy 
God. And so he's saying, this is what we're going to do. And it says, and the children of Israel did so and put them out without the camp. As the Lord spake unto Moses, so did the children of Israel. Now, we hear people are sick. We hear people are struggling. We hear people are connected or touched someone who's dead. That means they've lost someone that's close to them. And we feel a sense of sympathy, which I want us to get this in our mind. God does as well. But we have to understand as we look at this that these conditions represented something. Now, it's very important. It represents sin or the symptom of sin, but it does not connect to them individually. They're not saying, you're a leper. What individual sin did you have? We're booting you out of the camp because you're a leper and you must be horrifically sinful. No, the leprosy, and by the way, it's not our leprosy. I think we covered that in Leviticus. Leprosy or Hansen's disease is a different type of disease. Leprosy to them uh, would have had some effect of psoriasis, but you would think scaly skin, something that's not right, it's not whole. And that's important to remember that it's something unwhole. Remember in Leviticus, the law was about not being whole. You could be white spot, and not another white spot, and it's unwhole, but if your whole skin turned another color, suddenly you were whole. And so a lot of the animals, the way they moved and why they were unclean, they weren't whole. They were shifty in their movement. And so what we have to understand is that these things represent sin, the symptom of sin. God is in the camp. He's holy. And holiness cannot have contact, in that sense, with unholiness. Now, how do we know that God cares for the lepers? And he cares for those with a discharge and cares for those who've lost loved ones. Well, we only have to look briefly into the New Testament and watch Jesus Christ. That's God come to earth. And how did he interact with those with this condition? Well, he healed the lepers. He's in towns and he heals everyone with any illness. And what does he do with the dead? Well, he raised them. Yeah, Tom? The, the idea of holiness permeates, right? So what's been engaged in, and that's something to keep in mind and make sure we don't lose sight of why God is doing this. Because what he wants to do with Israel is for them to understand the reality of a holy God, to understand who God is and who we are. And we are distinctively not holy. And so God is setting them outside the camp but what happens a lot of times is people read the Old Testament and they see a sternness. They give God a characteristic that God does not have. It's, it's, it's actually us treating God or responding to God incorrectly. This was symbolic of humanity's struggle with sin. But what we see is God's infinite love for the lepers and the diseased and those who have passed on and the, and the hurt and the pain. And again, go to the New Testament. That is God. And he's in flesh. And what is he doing? He's raising the dead. He is healing the lepers and the sick. And he dies for all of us. And so we understand God's love for those. But what is represented here is sin as a whole. And then why relist these three things? <clears throat> why dive into lepers, discharge, death? And I want us to see this as, as a movement forward. Leprosy to them, which would be patchy, scaly skin disease, was an outward show on the surface, outside, of unholiness or unwholeness, which we talked a lot about in Leviticus, being not whole. And it is an outward representation, an exterior thing. Why discharge? And this would have been a long issue of discharge, usually from what would be the reproductive organs. And again, what is this? Inward unwholeness. And so one is an external representation of sin. You have brokenness in your outside. And then discharge would show you that there's brokenness from the inside. So outside now and then inside. And then you think, why list the people who've been in contact with someone who's died? And let's be honest. To whom do you contact? Who do you typically run into 
that would be dead. We go to funerals of people we know, of people we love. How will we interact? So this is someone who's lost most likely a loved one, and they're going to have contact with the dead. Well, what's death? Well, that's the ultimate representation of what sin costs, right? What does the Bible say? The wages of what? Is death. Death is the end. It is the exact opposite of holiness and life. It's what God is giving an idea to them is the idea of being unclean or unholy. And these typify the exterior, the interior, outward, inward, and then just a whole full representation of what sin costs, which is death. And it's saying anyone that's in contact with death, the exact opposite of perfect life, which again would be Jesus Christ, God is perfection. And so they are to step outside. And what is God doing here? God is making clear to Israel through the symbolic picture of unwholeness, the need to see and respond to his continual presence. And if you want a word here, it's awareness of God in the everything of life. Is Israel going to be aware that they're God's people, that God dwells among them, that the reputation, that the, the testimony of Israel is that God is there? And, and I put in my notes, this is a painful and poignant reminder of the reality that we are unwhole. None of these are easy to distance from. They are for us, right? We read it. Get rid of the lepers. Get rid of the ones with the issues. And the people that get close to dead people, get them out of here. And then be in camp for a second. And your mom is sick with leprosy. And she has to go outside the camp. And your son has a long-term discharge, and he's got to go outside the camp. And you've just buried your brother I got brothers to kill off, so that's why I'd pick those, right? So I have six of those so I can deal with that. You, you've just buried a brother, and now you've got to leave camp. That's all painful things, right? These are all struggles and pain, and it depicts what sin has done to what God has made and what sin cannot dwell with God. And so it's this picture that's there, and the idea is that they learn this picture and understand the weight of the presence of the most holy God. And I'm going to say it again, not an individual lesson for specific people. It's not a lesson for me because my brother died and I helped to bury him. It's a lesson for the whole of the community that there is pain and sin, that there is loss and sin, and that there's also a need to recognize that they are in the presence of, an un, or of a holy God and they are unholy. I put a note in here, what happens in Israel well, you listen and read about the Pharisees and they take the law and they make it into something that's their standard. They misrepresent and they misapply the law. Thus, their hatred, one of the reasons they hated Jesus Christ is because he embodied what God was showing them with the law and with everything there. And they're just cavalierly, when I say showing no care for the people and making it individual. You go to John 9, one of my favorite parables, my favorite miracles in the Gospels, and it's the blind man from birth that's healed. And what do the disciples ask? They say to Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? And you know why they were confused, why they asked the question? Because he was blind from birth. So they literally were like, did he sin as a baby when he was born and was blind because of that? Or is it his parents? Now, if he'd been blind since he was one, they would never ask the question. It had to be his fault. And that's not, that's not what this represents at all. These conditions represent the unwholeness of humanity and, very importantly, the presence of God, the holy God, among them. And I put here, it's always convenient to make it about someone else and not about us. Because, right, if I can make a rule and boot out somebody else, I punt you out, then I feel like I am qualified to be around the Holy God. Get rid of Corey. Keep Kenny. Now I put the pain on him, and I have all... That's what the Pharisees were doing. Let's make somebody else horrible. And you're horrible, and you're horrible. I'm good. They're bad. Right? The Pharisees' prayer, what was it? I'm so happy I'm not like this publican. What does that prayer depict? It depicts somebody who sees this lesson 
and doesn't see themselves as learning that lesson. So I put as a thought question, how does, how do we keep that? How does, how does this apply today in our life? Because all of scripture has application. And there's a very clear, Numbers has a very poignant thing about God's presence and his holiness and how we act. So how would we apply this today? The whole community in Israel, very painfully, very poignantly, is reminded that God is holy and they are not, and they send people out. How would we do this in our church life today or our life in general? You can talk out. It's okay. Otherwise, I have to give you my pat answer in italics. How do we apply this? If, if God wants us to be... Go ahead, Tom. I knew I could encourage you finally to, you know... Yeah, we see a very physical application there, right, with, with, with care and the quarantine that's there. Um, you're going to see that protecting the community, the body there. What about on the spiritual side of things when we look at this? What is something that would apply? Because that, that principle carries through in daily life. How, in the, how do I recognize? Because God is where? Where is God? Everywhere. He's omnipresent, Right. That's a uniqueness to God. Is Satan omnipresent? And that's something that the world has a misconception. Satan is most definitely not omnipresent. He is not the bad guy as strong as God, but is actually a created being nowhere near who God is. Okay, so physically, God is represented in the camp of Israel, the holy God. We know that God is omnipresent, so that means God is where at City Light? He's here. But then I have another question. What about in your house? So what is the point that's driving behind this? And this is something we really, when we walk through numbers, to understand, like Tom's saying too, understand the big picture that you have 2 million people and this idea of protecting them and fulfilling a promise, which is very real, that's there. But it's also teaching us something critical about all of life. And it's the awareness of God's presence. Not in the goosebump way. Right? Not in a, not in a, not in a, whoo, I got the chills. Remove the chills. Now you wake up, you get in your car and get cut off by somebody. Are you living with the awareness of God's presence? Because that changes how we react, right? Because we're by ourselves. We just mumble and grumble and go off on anything we think of because we have freedom. There's no one else here. Who could even hear us? We're just blowing off some steam. Well, are you aware of God's presence. And this is one of the things that's this idea of the uncleanliness. Again, the quarantine component, the physical component, the fulfillment of God's promises to them, and very practical and very real to that, but also this idea that God is present among them and we are cognitive of that. As believers, we know He's present, right? Everyone here says God is God sees everything. This is something little kids talk about, sing about. But how do we respond to God's presence being everywhere? And I think if we're being fair with ourselves, we forget about it. Israel forgot about it. Their history is plagued with it. You want to know who Israel pictures for us? Here's God's chosen people, and they forget that God is their God, that he's God and they're not. And it's very easy to look at Israel and say, I can't believe they did that. And then just rewind a day in your life and say, huh, how aware of, was I of God and how I interacted, how I responded, what I did? Does it change the way I talk, act, and think? And I want us to get this idea as they move into the desert, as they go to enter the promised land, God, without apology, wants to change how they talk, act, and think across the board.
Moses is going to hit a rock in this book and not get to enter the promised land, and it feels harsh. But God wants to alter how you talk, act, and think, and he holds him accountable for what he knows about God. He talked with God face to face. He doesn't get to hit a rock. He doesn't get that because God wants to influence how he thinks, how he talks, how he acts. Now, the uncleanness in camp must be removed, but that doesn't end the cleanup process. <laughs> I love the next one because as we see in the next one, God wanted everyone to come clean. So this one fascinates me uh, just reading it. So let me look at verses 5 through 10. The idea of restitution, but don't miss how it's laid out. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, when a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit, that seems broad, um, to do a trespass against the Lord, and that person be guilty, then they shall confess their sin which they have done, and he shall recompense his trespass with the principle thereof, and add unto it the fifth part thereof, and give it unto him against whom he hath trespassed. And so far, if you read this, you'll notice it's talking about sinning against God, sinning against God, sinning against God, make restitution. And all this time we're thinking, yeah, give it back to God. And suddenly we realize that they've sinned against someone in the community. But God made sure they understood they first sinned against God, but they've offended, they've sinned against someone in the community. So they need to make restitution. Here's what I love about verse 8. We're only about a year or so out of Egypt. But if the man have no kinsman to recompense the trespass unto, let the trespass be recompensed unto the Lord, even to the priest, beside the ram of the atonement, whereby an atonement shall be made for him. And every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring unto the priest, shall be his. And every man's hallowed thing shall be his. Whatsoever any man giveth the priest, it shall be his. And verse 8 is fascinating, because what we have is... God saying, if you've done something wrong, make restitution. And if the person is dead, give restitution to their next of kin. And if they're not around, make sure you give restitution to the priest. And I want to rewind a year and a half, and we're going to stop right here. And we've only been out of Egypt for a short period of time. And I'll talk a little bit more in a second about it. But I think they're moving back into Egypt and seeing where they've done wrong to their neighbor there as well because who's died in the last year? There's some, but not enough to not have next to kin and all this unfold. Coming clean, and here's my illustration. Who here has ever had a child do something wrong and as a parent, your hope was that they would come clean on their own? You can't shake your head, Jess. It's off limits. No motion. Right, if you're a parent or been around parents and kids, if you've worked with them, you always wish from a Christian standpoint that they'll come clean on their own, that it's not a forced apology, that their heart is broken about sin and that they think, I need to make restitution for this sin. I want to let you know what I've done wrong. And we want, if you're, if, if, as Christian Parents, we're going to teach our children, right, exactly what Moses is teaching here. You've sinned against God. Your unkindness, I'm going to throw something out. You're unkind to a sibling. You've sinned against God. You've sinned against them. You ask God's forgiveness and you make restitution with them. But as a parent, we always want them to come clean on their own, admit they're wrong, and take the next step to deal with it. God is here basically saying, if I'm condensing it down into an illustration, we understand, come clean, Israel. How have you, and very specifically, because it starts out with any trespass that men can commit, and it ends with making restitution to people you've offended in your community in Israel. How have you defrauded your neighbor, and what are you going to do about it? And, and he starts out with a process, and there's, there's I think, a, an important concept to be learned here on coming clean. First, recognize the sin is against the Lord. God unapologetically tells him that your sin is against God. You've sinned against God. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, Psalm 51, I think it is. What is he writing there? It almost seems like he's not acknowledging what he's done, but he says, to you and to you alone, I have sinned. What is that? <coughs> That's following numbers understanding that he has defrauded God. He sinned against the holy God. <laughs> Did he sin against Uriah? Oh, you most, 
Definitely, right? Had him murdered. Bathsheba, most definitely. Could he make recompense to Uriah after he murdered him? No, he could not. Did he lose the child? You most definitely did. Is there turmoil in his family for the rest of his life and their whole generations? Yes, there were. He sinned against someone in the community, but he first sinned against God, and that's what God's saying. Recognize the sin is against the Lord, but then God doesn't let you off the hook. Recognize the sin against your neighbor. See what you've done to defraud them, and then restore what was lost. Full restitution plus one-fifth to the person or next of kin and a ram offered for atonement. That was not a cheap restitution. I'm going to make an illustration. I steal someone's lamb. I now have to return the lamb and the value of one-fifth beyond that. Then I must go to the priest and offer my atonement of a ram to which the priest is going to offer. They're going to get some of it. And so it's going to cost me. And then if no one is alive, you think, I'd love to make restitution, God. But Corey's gone and all his next of kin are gone. Sorry, you're up front, so you're getting to be an illustration. Poor Corey's got skin disease, leprosy. He's got dying, you know. I've defrauded him of lambs. This is a tough seat to be in. And I think to myself, whew, by the skin of my teeth, I ripped him off in Egypt, and now I don't have to take care of it. And God says, no, now you go give this to the priest. What do I give to the priest? I give the lamb, I give one-fifth value, and I bring the ram for my atonement offering. Make restitution. And I put here, they understand that cheating another Israelite or anyone was a sin against God, and it was a sin against their neighbor. They needed to realize their guilt. God is not buying the I didn't know. And I want to rephrase that. God is not buying that I didn't know I defrauded my neighbor. God is making very clear that he expects his people to go in the annals of their history and see if they've defrauded their neighbor. To find out, to realize, it says, and that person be guilty. Right here, Moses is saying, hey, think about what you've done to other people in God's community. Think about what you've done to other people that are God's chosen people. Work through your history, and if you have done something that is in a stolen lamb, or let's be honest, that's an easy one, right? I know I stole the lamb. I'm definitely guilty. Not my lamb, now I have the lamb. But what are the, all the nuances of how we can defraud somebody? How do you recompense for a lie you've told that costs them energy, time, money, pain? And so this was not an easy exercise they had to go into, but God is saying to them, realize your guilt. Be aware of the standard, which is God, and, and figure out what's wrong. And I put as my notes, don't miss that the passage here is helping them find and realize the sin from the past. He didn't say from now on, make restitution. He said, figure out where you've wronged someone from your community. Now, just as a thought, we know it's important because God said it's important and it's always important. Why would it be increasingly important as you're getting ready to journey through the desert and go enter the promised land? How close is this community? How tight were they living? This isn't country dwellings. I mean, they're out in tents, I get that, but they're packed on top of each other like sardines in a can. Two million people camped around the tabernacle. This is a ton of people in a tight space. Now I've got to go march in battle with Corey. Because remember what we talked about? Who went to battle? Everyone did. We're not sending the soldiers. I'm fighting next to the guy I stole his lamb from. Might have been 10 years ago. Has he forgotten? No. Ever have something take something from you? You ever forget that? You know you don't. I remember when a friend of mine took money out of my wallet. It was a McDonald's. And I told him, put it right back. It was $5. And I let him go hungry because he took the money out of my wallet. I even know who what friend it was. I'm still friends with him, but I never opened my wallet in front of him. We remember when something takes something. Now, does that affect how Corey fights next to me? 
Does it affect our interaction? Do you see God's wisdom in, in the function of the community saying, you better get all of this taken care of, and then it's a law that moves forward. Don't defraud anyone. It's a sin against God, and it's a sin against that person. And again, I want to remind you, we've been a year and a little bit outside of Egypt. God's going back to how they lived in Egypt. Were they ever not God's people? No, they're God's people. Even when they're enslaved in Egypt, they're God's people. And how they acted to each other has bearing here. I put as another thought question, how does that apply in the church today? Deal with sin. Take care of it. Be honest. I think that's the big one. We are very quick to see sin in other people. I know when someone's offended me. I feel that. I know that. But do I know when I've offended somebody else? When I've sinned against them? When I defrauded them? Do I care about making restitution? Do I work to make it right? And, and I, I think that some of the takeaway that we have is, I wrote this down in my notes, deal with sin and the hurt it has caused. Recognize that it broke God's law first and then seek forgiveness from Him. Restore what has been taken and this is crucial no matter what, no matter when, but more so as this mass of humanity is going to move together into the promised land. Okay, now let's apply that. Let's apply this idea. We're in church now. We're together. We're fellowshipping together. Do we sense or understand an increased burden for the people in the church that you may be offended or hurt, who are we marching with today on our journey? Well, City Light, we're marching with everyone else here at City Light. And it doesn't mean that we're all on our own little mission, that, that it doesn't matter who else is in another community, but I want you to get an idea of who you're in close battle with. If I've offended someone I work with in Awana, how is that going to affect our ministry to the kids? Well, that's going to be hampered, right? Do I throw off their teaching? What if I've offended Kelvin? I haven't, but what if I have? Not that I know of, but I'll go back in my past and think about it. Um, but, and he's, te- he, what, it was last week, but he, he's teaching, and he's teaching the gospel. What have I done? I, I have, I've hampered, I have, I have, see how the sin is against the Lord, how the sin is against him, and I've affected his ministry. Well, if we would apply that as a church, and we think about that, we grab hold of this idea, when we start seeing that what God is doing, the, the amazing wisdom in God, but how do we need to take it today and say, hey, how do we learn from what God did with them? Now, I'm going to transition to the end of the chapter as I typically run out of time, which is my norm. But this one is, the conversation turns now to a very sensitive issue and involves husband and wife. And here God prescribes a way to resolve or reveal a broken or a breaking marriage. And the Lord provides a miracle. I, I men, remember we talked about how many miracles are there in numbers at the beginning? And we all chat. We start counting 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And then we realize there's a miracle every day for 40 years with the manna. But I think it's helpful to keep bringing up the miracle. And here we see punishment, but don't miss the miracle because the water doesn't make someone uh, lose a baby and have their thigh rot out because it's just water with a little dust and ink in it, and it's not going to do anything to your body. It, it is a ritual, a symbolism. It points to something for them. But we're going to dive in to a very sensitive issue. And I want you to see the buildup. We started with dealing with the community illness, right? So here's the idea. There's leprosy, there's discharge, there's death. And this is a very big, broad picture, is it not? Of what sin feels like in a community. And they're representing, they're moving people out. As Tom mentioned again, quarantining. It's making sure we don't hurt the rest of the community, but it reminds us of wholeness. There's all these laws drive us to wholeness, which is holiness, and drives us to God's presence. Then God says, deal with your, your individual sins, how you've defrauded other people. And now we move to a very long segment, 20 verses, not the easiest to quite grasp or understand, but I want you to see we have this broad picture of sin in the camp. Then we have this more individual picture of sin, how I've defrauded my neighbor. And now we get down to the family unit, and, and it's hard to imagine a more personal attack, a sin, an opening for Satan. And so we're going to be looking at verses 11 uh, through 31, and I'll read a portion of these so we can understand it. But again, this is a sad picture of a broken world. 
the reality or suspicion of a broken relationship. The worldly opportunity for this would have been overly abundant. So many people in close quarters, constantly involved in each other's business, would have been ripe for sinful liaisons. And such reality or suspicions destroy a family and a clan, and I'll be honest, a whole community. So God provided a way for resolution. And we begin now with understanding the circumstance. So look at 15, verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, neither should be taken with the matter. So I want you to understand, someone falls into sin, and it's going to be definitely leaning towards the, the woman. It's zeroed in. It's, that's part of the toughest part of this law as we see it, to understand it. And there is a suspicion of immorality, of adultery. It goes on. And the spirit of jealousy come upon him, the husband, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled. Or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled. And that's a critical part of this, because this test is both revealing and protecting of the innocent. And so we'll see how that comes out. Then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and he shall bring her offering for her, the tenth part of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon, for it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity to remembrance. If you go to Leviticus, I think 5.11, the grain offering, the sin offering, does not have oil on it. It doesn't have frankincense on it. So what we're going to see in this circumstance is here. A husband suspects his wife of adultery, but there's no proof at all. It's him. It's in his heart. It's in his mind. But there's, they didn't get caught. There's no evidence. What happens? Well, if you just stop for a second and think about a family where that happens, there's a suspicion of adultery, and that relationship is broken. It's shattered. It's, 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 it's not going to be functioning. So this husband suspects that he has to bring his wife and he's with her to the priest. He must bring the sin offering. He's bringing it. It's given there. No added oil or frankincense. It was, it was a sin offering. And it speaks to the lack of what's missing in the home. One commentator talked about there's no frankincense and there's no oil in that home. There's no spirit of God. There is no joy. There is no peace. This is as bad as it can be, right? And then we look at 16 through 28, and it's not, again, it's, it's, it's an involved process. And due to time, I'm going to kind of walk us <coughs> through this process. This is what takes place. So she's brought to there, and she, I'm going to read the first one. And the priest shall bring her near, and if you underline in your Bible, you want to understand this segment, and set her where? Before the Lord. That's a critical phrase right there. I want you to understand something. It's not about the water. It's not about the husband. It's not about the priest. It's not about the wife. Who is she standing in front of? This is about being in God's direct judgment that's going to take place. Let me walk through this. Um, it is not the ritual or the oath that she swears she didn't do it um, that's going to bring clarity. But instead, right as we start out the process, understand this. Who is going to bring clarity? The Lord is going to bring clarity. Brought before the Lord. Keep that in mind. Some people read this and they liken it to a Babylonian test um, where if you suspected a woman of adultery, they would throw her in the river and if she survived, she was innocent. If she didn't survive, she was obviously guilty. Well, that's handy. What river did you throw her in? Was it the rapids? Can she swim? There's, that, that's not, see, that's a test that is putting magic into the water, right? This is definitely not. Now, why does God have a ritual because I want you to realize this ahead of time. God has them walk through these steps because, one, it's very public, and, two, it's very involved. The husband participates in this. The wife participates in this. The priest participates in this. Who's participating in it? From priest to people, everyone's involved. What? To see what God is going to reveal. But it's before God. So what we see here is the priest, and since I'm short on time, I'm going to just walk through it. The priest gets water from the tabernacle which in the mind of the people, right, who can get water from the tabernacle? Well, it's definitely not the people. You get killed if you get close to the tabernacle. 
by Levites. Remember that? So it's the priest gets what would be considered holy water. And then he adds dust from the tabernacle floor. He sprinkles it in. This is not going to make the water taste horrific. It's not going to make it. It's bitter water because if this woman is guilty, she will. And a lot of people have a miscarriage. It says rot away. Uh, in the Misna, it says um, where she has sinned is where she will face her punishment. It actually lines up very well with the Hebrew. She will not bear children. Where she has sinned with, she will no longer be. It, it, it's destroyed. The priest is going to unbind her hair. The reason for this is, and it's, a, it's mourning, there's a potential for judgment. In Israelite culture and, and, and how God ordained it, the man is the head over the wife and her hair, if you go to Corinthians, is her covering. And so the unbinding of her hair is depicting that she's now standing, how? Individually for God. And it's a sense of mourning that's there because the husband is now in some ways relinquished his overarching headship in this way right now she sits on the seat and the priest has put the water in her hands and he's undone her hair all of this is very symbolic of what's unfolding in this moment there's openness there is individual accountability before the lord she no longer says the husband is at fault remember some of the laws before if, if you look in leviticus if a woman commits to something and her husband hears it and he doesn't say anything else and then it's a locked in commitment but if the husband doesn't hear it he can say no he has 24 hours to shut it down but what we have here is we suddenly have removed he, he's relinquished quote unquote husband rights now god she stands openly before the lord the mourning is if this accusation proves true. She holds the cereal offering. The priest recites a curse, and she has to agree to it. Amen, amen, she says. He then writes the curse on a scroll and washes it into the water. What is that symbolizing? We've got tabernacle water, dirt from the tabernacle, both holy things. We've written a curse that goes in. We're just picturing for them. That this is, we're taking this seriously. Then the priest takes the grain offering, the sin offering, and burns part of it on the altar, just like he's supposed to. Notice the offering toes forward. Then the woman drinks the water, and God reveals the truth of the situation. She will be affected if guilty, and not guilty, she'll have children. What's the payment if you commit adultery in Israel? It's death. It's a death penalty. Now, I'm just going to ask somebody, what bothers you about the whole adultery situation right now, up to this point? Yeah, where's the guy? But we don't know. There's no way of knowing who this guy is. But there's a husband and wife, and you see this. And so it's very strange, right, because it's, it's very one-sided feeling. But I, I want you to note this, and this is really critical. Participation. She is involved in affirming, in sitting there, and having her hair undone. The husband must bring a cereal offering. When her hair is unbound and she stands open, mourning before God, that headship is removed. So at this moment, then God is, it's a direct connect. If she is innocent as she stands there, as an Israelite woman, as God's child, she stands uncondemned. There's nothing to fear at all. Now she stands before God. This clown that's accusing her, this husband, right? He's out of the picture on this moment. And so she sits there. She then drinks the water. God says, if she has committed the sin, her thigh rots away. She will not have a child. She will not bear children. Uh, there's a chance that she had. It's hard to understand exactly what it is. Some people think it's just she'll always have miscarriages. She'll never have children. Uh, the implication in Scripture to me is there's something more drastic and, and evident right then and there. She's obviously she's guilty or she's not guilty. One person wrote, uh, I think it was John MacArthur says, and if she doesn't have the wasting disease, and remember the Mishnah said she will have the punishment and where she committed the crime. Basically, it's going to be obvious. It's going to be evident. And so what's fascinating is, is that instead of death, which is what you have for adultery, she is going to bear life. The exact opposite will unfold. And it fills a large portion because as we look at uncleanness and coming clean to properly grasp holiness in the camp, 
And the idea of breaking faith and breaking unity, well, adultery is brokenness at some of its ugliness, right? It's, it's, it's this horrific breaking of the family, and it encompasses it all. And then we close with understanding the purpose. I'm going to read 29 through 31. If you look at this, it says this, This is the law of jealousies, when a wife goeth aside to another instead of her husband and is defiled. Or, notice it's always listed right after, or when the spirit of jealousy cometh upon him and he be jealous over his wife and shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute upon her all this law. Then shall the man be guiltless from iniquity and this woman shall bear her iniquity. Which 31 is a, if anything's throwing a curveball like man, we're, we're zeroing in on the lady and then at the end of this, they're saying the man is guiltless but she is bearing her iniquity and it's understanding what they're trying to say because it feels one-sided. The husband's free from iniquity in bringing the charge if she's guilty. But she's guilty, then he's guiltless. She pays for her guilt. There's, there's a payment that's involved in there. But if she's not guilty, as revealed by the Lord, the husband's doubts must be erased. He cannot bring this charge Again, God had revealed truth, and he is accountable to that truth. Now, we forget that in Israel, what did Moses, what did the, what did the Pharisees say to Jesus? Well, Moses said we could give a certificate of divorce. And what does God say? What's Jesus' answer to them? He did that because of the hardness of your hearts. Well, who's alive right now? Moses. What does a man do with a wife he doesn't like? Or offends him. You go to Leviticus. It's pretty easy to get rid of your wife. When there's a lot of laws about taking a second wife, there's just a whole plethora of things. And one commentator notes this, an adulterous wife could not escape the punishment she deserved, but an innocent wife enjoyed legal protection. She walks through this ordeal. Now, what is this ordeal? Well, it's public, highly participatory, Everyone in their community knows that he's just dragged his wife and accused her of adultery. And then they put the test before God and she proved innocent. Well, he can't bring that up again. That charge cannot... Well, I don't know if I trust God's... Uh, I don't trust what God revealed. Well, yeah. <coughs> then he's broken the law. And so she's protected against any wrong that he could bring against her. Her status as that wife and the rights that she have are locked in. And I want you to see, even though the law feels one-sided, what really happened was the innocent are protected against wrong. If she's committed wrong and broken the marriage vows, then he's protected against her. But if he is just overly jealous and brings her forward and she stands before God innocent as his child and God confirms that she is protected against him. And so God has taken what is I call potentially one of Satan's playgrounds and he stripped it away from the nation of Israel. Because this is people go to the promised land as they go to fulfill what God wants done we can't have these openings for Satan, this discord. Now, Numbers is filled with discord, by the way. We, we, we march and we start complaining. And then we have defeat and we start complaining. And then we don't like that someone else is in charge and we start complaining. And then we don't like what God gives us and so we want more meat. We complain, complain, complain. But what God has done is to protect them. And again, in this tight-knit community, community nothing is, is kept secret. If a wife walks through this ordeal and is proved innocent by God... Well, God has proved her innocent. And how dare someone argue with God? And I put, despite all the intricacies of the rituals, it is God who knows and it is God who judges. The process, the procedure, did what? It exposed the sin that may have occurred and engaged the community in the seriousness of sin. And, let me add, the seriousness of doubt. If this was a serious doubt in the mind of a husband, and then God erases that doubt. It's gone. It's solved. It doesn't have to be brought up again. It placed a hedge around the innocent woman and expunged the sinful one. These processes showed the community the value of fidelity, of faithfulness, and the value of knowing the truth and living out the reality 
of the truth that God had revealed. When this was done, what God had revealed was the action that must be taken. What is the punishment for adultery? It's death. What is the, when I say punishment for doubt? Protection, clarity, exonerated, proven innocent by God. And no one may argue with that. Israel was going on the move, and they needed to clean up to be ready to set out. They needed to remove the symbol of sin sickness in the camp, recognizing the holy God is present. They needed to right the wrongs, seeing their sin against God and their fellow Israelites, and resolve marital strife of the most sensitive nature. And I put in my notes, Satan was to have no easy footing in their life. Community, my neighbor, or let me do this, all the nation, guys in my tent tribe around me, and then right into my family, and God has given this protective band. Because we look at this and say, whoa. But what we realize is God is revealing the truth, and he's going to them and saying, I want you to come clean. I want you to be honest. I want you to deal with your problems. And then as a general community, I want you to recognize who I am and that my presence is here and what does this represent and how can we make sure we keep in mind who God is. And so I put, so street level for us, what do we walk away with is do we recognize, as a question, do we recognize the presence of our Holy Lord and Savior? If we leave here, as we walk around, as we engage in our work, as we engage with other people, as we engage with the lost world, as we engage with our church, as we engage with other believers, do we Stay aware, and that's not just saying, I know he's omnipresent. It's actually in some sense, and I, I said to get away from the goosebumps. I'm not going for goosebumps, but I'm going for a real awareness of God's presence. That's there. Number two, do we recognize the breaking of faith and restoration that's needed with God and man? That God was not casual about what you've done to your fellow believer, to apply it to us, and that in no way, shape, or form are you off the hook. But you say, well, God died on the cross for my sins, so I'm just going to go confess it to God, and it'll all be fine with whoever, Corey. We'll keep with Corey today. We'll pick on someone else later. God says make restoration. What is the principle we learn from Numbers is, is restore. And then do we value fidelity, and I'll add, in our marriages, but let's just expand it because it's hoping to understand marriage depicts right the marriage supper of the lamb we are the what of christ bride of christ marriage is a picture of all that fidelity is, is it paints this huge picture of our relationship with god and i put here do we hunt for truth and then live by it because that's exactly what's taking place here revealed truth but here's the issue i think and i'll close with this i think oftentimes we know the truth but we don't want to live by it. And what God was doing in the community here was revealing truth and saying, you have to live by it. And there's nothing better than God doing that. Let me close.